Hello and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech. Connect Health Tech is Cambridge University's Enterprise Zone, the gateway into the university's life sciences and health tech community for collaborators, companies and investors. We work to join the dots between medicine and technology across the Cambridge ecosystem and beyond by strengthening interdisciplinary bridges between academia, industry and healthcare, we facilitate real-world possibilities, transforming innovative ideas into tangible outcomes that benefit society. In our podcast series, Joining the Dots, we explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations, finding the right partner, and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech, and in this episode of Joining the Dots, we explore how to commercialise research, look at the different routes to translation, and key factors to consider when looking to translate research. Joining me today is Professor Claire Thompson, CEO of Agility Life Sciences. Claire is an award-winning scientist, strategist, and storyteller with more than 15 years experience in the pharmaceutical industry, including working for GSK and Pfizer. Agility Life Sciences is an award-winning CDMO consulting and communications firm, which works with organizations across the healthcare space to advance their products and raise their profile. Claire is also an industry expert in residence at the University of Cambridge and is chair of the International Pharmaceutical Federation's Women in Science and Education Initiative. Claire, thank you very much for joining me today. I am really looking forward to this conversation. So let's start at the very beginning and tell me, how did you start your career journey? Oh, thanks, Paula. It's so chuffed to be on the podcast. It's lovely to be asked. Um, I'm a biochemist by training many, many moons ago. And I think I should probably update my bio. I think it's maybe 20 years in the industry now. As you can, I mean, our, our audience can thankfully only hear me so they can't see the lines around my eyes, which definitely show my age. But I think what, what really spurred my interest in science, I've always been, always been inquisitive. It was probably drove my mum mad, but I loved watching the uh, Royal Institution Christmas lectures as a as a little one they they're uh, they're fantastic science communicators and i think that's only really become apparent to me in the last few years about how important it is that we communicate science in a really um in an infectious way so i loved watching the royal institution christmas lectures and seeing how they explain different concepts and everybody was so passionate about what they did so i remember watching that with with my mum and, and my siblings when i was when i was younger and i've started to watch it with my daughter now as well and thankfully it's still as wonderful and she's as geeky about it as i am Ah, oh, it's fantastic. So they really do hit home because as a kid, some of them hit home for me and, and not all. And I'm wondering who really is watching. But it's fantastic seeing the outcomes, that inspiration um, there from, from childhood, Claire. It's and, still me watching it. Yeah, <laughs> it's into the next generation, which is really a great story, you know, for those um, Royal Institution lectures. So tell me a bit about Agility Life Sciences and how did that idea come about? After I did my, my degree in biochemistry in Scotland, so I'm originally from Northern Ireland, I left a long time ago, went to Scotland to do my undergraduate degree and then went to Nottingham to do a PhD. Um, and there my PhD was sponsored by what was then Smith Klein Beecham, now GSK. And that kind of got me really interested in, in the pharmaceutical industry. But I think when I was younger, I, I 
I, I wanted to get involved in, in, in medicine. So it was either going to be uh, as a, a practicing medic or a developing medicines and uh, the oh. kind of the, the research route took me down the, the developing medicines. Also, I mean, the sight of blood and I will fall over. So that <laughs> meant that being a, <laughs> being a proper doctor certainly wasn't for me. Um, but I, I, I guess that really spurred my interest uh, in the in the the industry, and I worked in wonderful companies, so large pharma for a number of years, um, then into smaller and smaller organisations. So I went from Pfizer and GSK, which had a hundred thousand people, more than that, uh, down to a a, a smaller um, medicines development and manufacturing organisation. I was employee number thirty three, and after that to a virtual biotech. So uh, I was employee number four there. So the, the only way for me to go after that was to set up on my own. Uh, I thought I had some reasonable skills that I could apply to help other organisations. You know, it's the big farm out there, but this farm, I mean, there's, I don't know, orders of magnitude more smaller organisations that are trying to discover new molecules and, and get them through to the clinic and get them through to the patient. And I'd always worked at the early stage R&D, that early cusp. So um I got the chance to work on a project, uh, and I and I took it. I, I set up on my own as a as a consultant, and then I just grew the business from there. So what I was doing was helping um, mostly small companies to turn their badly behaved molecules into something that's fit for for clinic, and then can go on to to patient. And for that, I was for quite a number of years just managing those projects so going okay this is what we need for you know we need to scale up this process we need to turn this into a product who are the companies that can do this and i was bringing on more team members as as we were um, um as we were growing clearly doing something right and it I got to the start of the pandemic and I was finding it harder and harder to find organisations to outsource the work to. So who either had the capacity so could turn it around reasonably quickly or the capabilities, so those technical capabilities to do it well and within the time frame. I went, I went to my, my head of development. Why don't we just do this? And she went, don't say just. What do you mean, why don't we just do this? And I said, well, why? we've got the skills internally. We've all been through the war wounds of developing compounds and developing formulations. So, and we're struggling to find people to do it. So why why don't we set up this up as a as a as an offering? She thought it was mad. I think she still thinks I'm mad. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, I'd been talking to some of the clients that we worked with, saying if we do this, would you consider putting some of those projects that we outsource with us? And one of them went, yes. Have our five badly behaved molecules. <laughs> uh, so. We, uh, we found some lab space pretty quickly and we moved in there. Uh, we bought, borrowed, kit, <laughs> recruited some people and we were up and running. And that was uh, September 2020. So our formulation development labs in Nottingham have been up and running for 20 months and I've never looked back. I wish I'd have done it before. Uh, see, my, my wife's like, this is a midlife crisis. I'm like, it's not a midlife crisis. It's a genius idea. <laughs> Very glad that I've done it. I think if it hadn't have been for the pandemic, I wouldn't have done it. Certainly that's kind of made me think if I ever find myself at a juncture and, and when I'm talking at various events and people go, OK, what 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 advice would you give people? 
um, I had to take my own advice in that, you know, if you're ever at a crossroads and you're trying to make a really hard decision, try and propel yourself five years into the future. And if you don't do this, will you regret it? And I thought, yeah, I will. I'll regret not doing this. So I've just got to take a deep breath. Just just leap in wonderful shoes. Just just do it. We've done it and I'm 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 loving it. And it, it's about that team development part there, you know. It's starting something new. You're in the middle of a pandemic. We have no idea where that's gonna go at all. It's a complete unknown to 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 everybody. Um and to take that leap of faith and to try and solve a problem that you could clearly see was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring that together. Um, it, it, it takes courage. It takes courage and it takes guts. And it really, it, you know, it's working and it's working successfully. So that's fantastic. Such an achievement and and going strong and growing. So uh, tell us a little bit about some of the projects that Agility gets involved with. What, what's coming up in the next year or so for Agility? Oh, we're working on really, really early stage molecules uh, at the minute. So what I'm hoping happens in the next year is that we can turn these into uh, products that give them, you know, the best chance of success and that in a year's time, they will then go into clinical trials for, so we've got ones for uh, um, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, just to, to mention a few. And I mean, these are diseases with massive need, massive unmet need. So anything that we can do to, you know, to accelerate their path to patients it's just wonderful and you're also um as i mentioned in your bio an industry expert in residence and you talked just briefly in the in the previous question about about teams um and what does that entail uh, in terms of sharing your expertise about putting together high performing teams being that industry expert in residence for cats oh do you know what it's such good fun and it's terrifying at the same time. So um, Cambridge is an ama- amazing place with super intelligent people. And every time I go, you know, I've got this grand title of expert in residence. So what, what happens is the, uh, the, the academics will contact the folk in cats and say, I've got this brilliant idea. They're always brilliant ideas, but I don't know how to take it forward to towards some kind of translation. So... Uh, I don't know how to to progress it forward. And cats will choose one of the number of uh, experts that they have uh, in in residence to come in and talk with the academics. So my, I guess what I bring to it, I'd like to summarise it, is I never know who I'm going to speak to or what I'm going to talk about. So it's brilliant coming in. uh, the, The academics will go, okay. so we've got this idea, we've got these data, what can we do with it next? And what I try and help them to figure out is what are the next killer experiments to get it to a point where either the either they've proved the mechanism, they've proved the principle, they've proved the concept, or they've got a minimum viable product that they can then go and get investment for, or find collaborators, or find partners to then take it to the next step, or to kill it off. So how are you going to catapult this or or kill it off? So I help them to try and define what what are those next things that you can do reasonably quickly to de-risk this as a as a piece of work, and then once you've got to there, planning for success, who can you work with? So do you need clinicians? If you need clinicians, where are you going to find them? If it's uh, other academic partners, I mean they'll know the academics in the field much more than I will. But if I've got personal connections, I can put them in touch. If it's uh, industrial partnerships 
who are the organisations that are interested in that and have I got any links into those and also who's got a who's going to fund it there's no point in having a great idea if you can't get any money behind it so where is the money going to come from so those are the kind of nuggets that I can seed uh, into there and then you know send them off with a a, a plan and and hopefully um a lot of enthusiasm to to do the work and then uh I think more often than not, I hear from them again about how they've progressed or, you know, whether they've been able to to make the the, the partnership or whether they've got funding. So it's yeah. brilliant. It fills my cup. It, you know, it fills me full of a lot of energy. Oh, great. Yeah. And that sense of reward, as you said, filling your cup, it, yeah. giving back. Um, you know, pay it forward is what I, is a term that I keep hearing, um, which is which is brilliant, which is brilliant. So we're just going to dig a little bit deeper on that and about the commercialisation element. Um and looking at helping academics find the right find the right routes for their research, can you expand a little bit a bit about the routes available for those wishing um, to take a research project further into product development? What are the options out there, Claire? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a, a piece of strategy work uh, a few months ago with one of the institutes in, in Cambridge, and as part of that, it was about it was about translational strategy. So, what uh, how does that institute? Um, translate currently and what's the kind of the plans for the future how can they have a, a a strategy in place to help them to identify research that could be translated but also support it so support the research and mostly support the people you know it's, it's the people that are doing all of this and I was fascinated when I spoke with the, uh, the the group leaders within the institute about how many of them said to me I'm 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 just a basic researcher. I don't do anything translational in the first breath, and then went on to tell me about these fantastic <laughs> translational projects that they'd done in the past and the pipeline of translational things that they had on the way. It's phenomenal, and I think it's the real misnomer around. The assumption is that translation means that you set up a spin-out company and you get investment in it and you sell it off for a hundred million pounds in a few years' time. And as part of that, you've got to leave your research behind and you've got to go and work in the company. That's for the most part nonsense. That's not the only way to do it. Yes, spinning out a company and getting involved in that as a CSO and raising funds, you know, it is part of it. And there are, you know, wonderful scientists within uh, the University of Cambridge who do that and do it very well, you know, serial uh, entrepreneurs. But translation to me is anything that allows you to take your basic research, and I use that in the strongest possible way. I, th I think that research in itself cannot be called basic. So translating your bench research into something that has application to health, what well, health is the area that I'm in. So whether that's animal health, human health, and moving it further along that line. So that can be from looking at you know lower species models into higher species models or devising uh, new bioassays where there aren't them before, uh, organoids, high throughput screening techniques, AI platforms. Yes, you can spin out a company, repurposing drugs. All of those things count as translation. So I, I, I think the commercialization translation piece, I think people get a bit lost in it thinking, oh my God, that sounds like a lot of hard work. How on earth do I do it? But more and more, there's a, an ask from the research councils, from the likes of Innovate UK, UKRI, BBSRC, and a lot of the philanthropic funds for there to be translational uh, elements within the research. So I'm hoping it becomes more common language and less frightening for people. 
And I think um, organisations like Agility will probably help within that space going forward in communicating it in a way, storytelling in a way that it's not as off-putting or it can or presented as, oh, okay, I didn't realise this could be an option for me. It's not just this way that I thought I had been taught, I've learnt is a particular route to go in translating research and publishing and so forth and so on. But there are other opportunities out there and I don't have to give up all my research and, and you know, go off and become a CEO or CSO, etc. Um, so there's a lot of work potentially to be done there around, um, you know, educating those in research about the different options available to them um, for, for their translational journey, whatever it is. Yeah. So, can you highlight a project where you've actually been involved at that critical point of defining the best approach for translation? Yeah, I, you know, I remember it really well. That this, uh, that an example that's just sprung to mind was a, I was at an innovation conference and maybe five or six years ago. And I mean, like the COVID years just blend in, so it could have been more than that. And there was a company that there were a, just a, a a startup, and uh, they were. They were pitching at this uh, innovation um, event and they were fabulous. Like mm. young, passionate, they they knew their stuff, they knew their story and they communicated it really, really well. And the company's name is Visus Nano and they have a, a, a drug looting intraocular lens. So it's for after uh, cataract yeah. uh, surgery. And they, they 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 talked about what their what their plans were, and they were looking for proceed investment at the time. And I remember them coming off stage, and I spoke to the CEO uh, afterwards, and I said that brilliant, really brilliant presentation. Have you thought about rather than going directly into the human market, going into the animal market first of all? Lower barrier to entry, therefore lower cost, and probably more appetite for investors to come in because they can see that you've you've got a, a product in you know, into the, the commercial space and from that you can then use that as a platform to go into the human space. And that's what they've done and I've kept going with them just as a as a sounding board for them as they've developed. They've just got 1.4 million in funding from Innovate UK and they're, they're fabulous people. They're just lovely people. And I'm so, it's so wonderful to see them, to see them succeed. Fantastic. So what does, what does a good opportunity for commercialization look like? From your experience, how important is it to, to link market need uh, with potential research, the applications of of, of research. So one of, one of my mantras, and it's, it's one of our um, values as a business, is start with an end in mind. And that's the thing that I encourage anybody at any stage of research to think about is what, what does the end look like? Yeah. If it is to take a product to market, whoever that customer might be, is to think about what's the gap in the market, but also what is the market for the gap? Yes, there may well be a gap in the market for your product, for your uh, for your drug, for your medical device. But are people going to pay for that? And who is it that's going to, to pay for that? I mean, the, the difficult one at the moment is anything around um, like new antibiotics. Yes, there's a massive need for new antibiotics. But the way to get paid for developing new antibiotics isn't there yet. There's, there's some incentives. Certainly they're coming from the US and hopefully will filter through to Europe and the UK. But it's not there yet. So it's a prime example. Yes, massive gap in the market. Market for the gap? Mm. 
not quite. So yeah, my advice is to start with an end in mind. Think about not just the size of your market and what the gap is there, but what's the what's that you know what's the market for the gap? Who's going to pay? How are you going to find those customers? And uh, what are you expecting them to pay for your product? And then that will help you to then come back to where you are at the moment and think right what what are the data sets that I need to get to to prove my my product you know what are, what are the series of um either trials or experiments that i need to go through to get to that point where i have a commercially viable product for the benefit of our audience this all sort of fits in with developing a commercialization strategy because that's that would be part of it and what are the key factors do you consider um to be key about what is a commercialization strategy and what do you what do you put in it it's uh, it's really doing your homework on what what is the 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 key market you're going to go after first and it mm. doesn't have to be the biggest one what it should really be is the one that's easiest for you to access at the moment so that you can start getting revenues into your business but also confidence and de-risking your whole your whole mantra your 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 product your platform your your company and keeping your investors happy um so in terms of commercialization strategy, think about who, what your, your markets are, what's your primary market, so how, what's going to allow you to get there quicker or with the, the most impact. And then from there, where, where are you going to go after that? So is it a certain type of cancer you're going to look at first and then you're going to broaden it out to others? Is it a certain geography you're going to go after first and then after others? So what's going to give you the greatest chance of success? And talk to your potential customers early on. You know, we all make assumptions. Have you validated this with your, your customers? And that can just be, you know, talking about, right, what are the problems that you face? What are the products that you use at the moment? What do you not like about them? what would you you know what would really make your life easier and then make it for them give it to them and, and keep you know revalidating that with them establish relationships with your potential customers and make it easy for them to buy your product in the future or your company uh, i just want to talk about a little bit about empowerment and the leaky pipeline i don't know if you've heard of the leaky pipeline and i've just got a bit of background to 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 share first of all I was reading a report, a 2018 report by the Royal Society of Chemistry, um, and they found a lack of women in leadership roles in academia, chemistry being the focus for them. And while 44% entered the pipeline at undergrad stage, there were only 39% at PhD stage, mm -hmm. and even less, 9% who actually attained a professorship. So the reduction of women as they advanced through the academic career stages was really clear and underpinning evidence highlighted things like academic culture, balancing responsibilities and funding structures as some of the factors for women not advancing through. Um, so chemistry won't be the only area here in, with, with a leaky pipeline, which from my perspective looks like it's surely affecting the number of female-led university spin-outs yeah. and this talent drain we see in the in academia and thus throughput into female-led startups. So I just wanted to touch on Claire, what more could be done to empower female scientists and particularly the next generation to keep advancing and it, into academic leadership or to consider translating their research into commercial success. What, what would, what's your view? I mean, the uh, I, I was on a panel 
earlier earlier this week, so I'd done some homework and some stats. So the panel was on. Uh, uh, it's, it's called "Girls Just Want to Have Funds" mm-hmm. with the with the DS and yeah. brackets, and it was looking at why um, female-led businesses don't receive as much funding and what on earth we can do about this. Uh, and I mean, there are more women getting PhDs now than there are men. So the the, the balance has, has shifted. But that only translates to I think it's one in three entrepreneurs are, are women. And if we invested equally in male and fe- solely male and, and female led businesses, then it would increase the global economy by two point five trillion dollars. So that I mean, the, the the numbers are there. It, it makes sense to do. So. And actually, female led businesses generate ten percent more revenues than than male only led businesses. So from an investment perspective, like well, why? It's not, exactly. What 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 what's going on? But I um. So I'm I'm gonna gonna digress for a moment. I promise I will come back to the, the point. My my daughter's five. She's at school at the moment, or else she would have joined us. She normally joins me on on things right. like this because I think it's important for girls to mm-hmm. see that they belong in places and they can do that. So if I'm at women in leadership events, she comes with me. Um, her first term at school, two of the boys in her class told her that she couldn't do something because she was a girl. So couldn't play a game or read a book or whatever it was. It was nonsense. So I'm a I'm a former footballer. Mm-hmm. Go and coach the kids football at school, so it's mixed, uh, mixed age group and uh, mixed yeah. boys and girls to show them, show the girls, yep, girls yeah. can play football and you belong here. Show the boys, girls can play football, and show the parents that are there to pick them up that girls can play football. What I'm also planning to do is to go in and you know do some science stuff with them to get rid of this nonsense. I think. Uh, I, I use the, the salon initiative, shine a light on nonsense. I think we need to stop telling girls that they can't do things. There was some nonsense a few weeks ago about um, uh, how, oh, no, girls don't really do physics. Oh, really? Really? And that, oh, that's why the numbers are low, because girls don't really do physics. You know, big believer, diversity doesn't just happen. Diversity is by design, and that's the way we should do things. So the way that we empower girls is we get out of their way we stop telling them from an early age that they can't and shouldn't do things because you know when they think they can't then then that puts these ludicrous barriers in the way all the way through and they can't be what they can't see and if people in the generations before have been told that they can't then they shouldn't do things that's why they're not there on tuesday i find myself in the same location is Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert. But I said to her, excuse me, Dame Sarah, can I ask something silly? She went, go ahead. I said, my daughter's five and she's lived half of her life in the pandemic. I'm trying to teach her that girls can do anything. I'm trying to engage her in science. And I've told her that you made the coronavirus vaccine. Please can I have a photograph of you to show her? And she's like, yes. So I got a photograph with Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert. And I then got to phone my five-year-old daughter and say, you know, you're going for a vaccine tomorrow. Well, I met the lady who made it, and this is her. So that she can see that these wonderful people are out there. And until more women are are visible and more children are fearless and they don't see these nonsense barriers in their way, that's, you know, that's when they will be empowered. That is a wonderful, wonderful story. I love the acronym SALON. Shine a light on nonsense. Mm -hmm. 
love a good acronym. I would have loved that type of story at the age of five because a lot of it is seeds of doubt and they you do carry them with you through adulthood, whether you're male or female. So, you know, but mainly for females. And I just think, you know, there's such an opportunity. It's not it's not just down to women. Oh, we'll leave it to the women to sort it out. We need we need men to be to be stepping up for us as well. And I'm not a f- I'm not a fan of men as allies or malies or whatever you want to call it. I think it's too passive. Um, I prefer the term advocates, so I'm coining it as madvocates. It sounds like you know 1990s Manchester stuff, but you know I I then not only do I shine a light on nonsense, but when I see a, a madvocate. I tell them and I thank them. Thank you for the, thank you for your support. Thank you for supporting the women around you. There's a a a, a chap asked me uh, earlier in the week. Look, I've I've got this young woman in my team. She's exceptionally good. She doesn't know how good she is, and she's kind of, um, she's not wanting to push herself forward because she doesn't want to put her head above a parapet because she's in a group full of men. Please, can can you can you talk to her? Of course, but first of all. Thank you for being a advocate. Oh, well, that's my job. But still, take wow. the praise. Not many people do this. Yeah. So um, uh, and uh, on International Men's Day every year, I send a little message out to the advocates who've supported me. It's important. Lovely. And just heading into football, because um, I know that is your sports passion. and You just mentioned that. And you play professionally at international level. At level. Now, there are always skills and life lessons that we pick up uh, from one area of our life and we can you know translate it into another um and I, i've had that from my own personal experience of, of stuff that i've done but can you talk us through claire what key skills have you taken from playing football into your life sciences career journey yeah brilliant question and and i i think that playing sport didn't just teach me skills for sport it taught me skills for life and for leadership i use them every day i talked earlier yeah. about being a being a tactician so uh i was a defender in my youth playing football and then i ended up on the wing it doesn't normally happen that way it was ludicrous but uh, so i was uh at the back i was always reading the game so trying to think right if that ball goes there where am i gonna go and positioning myself there so i think it's one of my strengths is reading trying to think two steps ahead which certainly helped when trying to plan work during the pandemic. Okay, right, so if that happens, what are we gonna do? From a people perspective, understanding your teammates and uh, so celebrating success when you've achieved the goal, making sure everybody does that, especially now that the world is on fire, we need to pause, reflect, even the small ones, it's so important we do so. But also maintaining momentum when things don't go as well as, as planned, you know, getting people's heads up. Communication is key. And yeah, getting the getting the best out of people, not the most out of them, getting the best out of them. So how do they work best? How do they respond best? So since um, I re- retired, I've been supporting uh, girls and women's football teams. Two years ago, we set up our uh, girls in football teams or gift grants initiative. We give teams £500 to spend on kit, coaching equipment whatever it is, but it's got to go to a girls team or a women's team. Uh, and as a result of that, we sub- currently support 33 teams around the UK from five to so from my daughter's age, all, all the way through that spectrum. Um, and we're streamlining that this year so that we uh, were providing follow on funding to some of those teams so calling it five aside model. So we're still going to support five clubs for five years. We're going to give them two thousand pounds a year 
every year for five years uh, with the view that that will help them to become more sustainable. So there'll be focuses there on how they recruit new players, how they retain their players and how they move them through that pathway and support them not just from a sport perspective, but from a you know safeguarding from a well-being perspective. So what's the social side of things as well? You know, if they're reasonably good footballers, but then end up being entrepreneurs or women in leadership, then bloody brilliant, brilliant. For me, it's about, okay, what's going to make things better for the next uh-huh. generation? So either holding the doors open for uh, for other women to come through, um, mentoring, coaching, football, talking at events, shining a light on nonsense wherever I see it. That's my job, Mike. That is fantastic and so inspirational. And you know, it, it for me, it's I can I can see why. In last year, you won the inaugural One Nucleus Life Sciences Inspiration of the Year Award. Congratulations on that achievement, which recognises someone who is an inspiration to others and shows great leadership in building teams and is an ambassador for the life sciences sector. So that whole story of building legacy and giving back is fantastic. So what or who inspires you now, Claire? Well, uh, one, I'm still a bit overwhelmed about winning that award. So there there are wonderful women that I I have within my tribe. So there are uh, women that I've kind of uh, worked with or somehow bumped into over the years and thought, yep, you're wonderful. You're like a king, hindered spirit and kind of kept them with me as part of my tribe. Uh, the the wonderful uh, Catherine Duggan, who's chief exec at uh, the International Federation of um, Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, so that's FIP. And for me, she taught me, she taught me about leadership and actually leadership is is passion and vision. It's not about managing people. There's another lady called uh, Helen Barker who has been instrumental at all of the crossroads in in my career uh, and has been there kind of as a, as a sounding board every time. And she's kind of helped me be the catalyst for change. She's, she's the one that's G'd me on. In fact, she's given me, I've got a coaster on my desk that says, well-behaved, well-behaved women rarely make history. And she bought me that and reminds me of it um, all the time. And who else inspires me? Probably my daughter. She's fearless. She's inspired me to think of things in, in uh, as a, you know, my focus now being on, on legacy when she was born. I, I promised her that I'd do everything that I could within my power to make sure that she wasn't defined by her looks or confined by her gender. So that's, yeah, that's my, my purpose now is to make sure that as much as I can. Lovely, lovely to hear. Um, and what is your approach to spotting and developing talent? Um, we're real characters, I think. So um, what the, the the types of people that I love to have, have around me, I call them my ACE principle. A is authentic, C is credible and E is engaging. So that's my ACE principle. And when I meet people or when, whether we're interviewing people, those are some of the things I look for. So are they authentic? Are they credible? I mean, uh, have they have they earned their stripes? Are they engaging? Are they are they people with purpose? Are they people with passion? And uh, yeah, those are the people that fill my cup and those are the people that I want around me. 
Such great principles to live by, um, and through that through that company journey as well. You, you know, you're bringing in, you know, you're bringing in the right people because they're just aligned to the values of the organisation and the people already within it. I think mean, it's, it's it's a great it's a great way to re- recruit and then retain talent because people live it, they breathe it, they enjoy the fruits of that those, of living those values i am it's um it can make such a difference it and it really does resonate with people so we've just um we're, we're bringing someone in from the the u.s which is phenomenal you were a small small company based in the ah. uk with a, someone in the in the u.s who's who's just agreed to come and join us in in preference over a large pharma company because of the values that we have we're people 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 work with people you've got to you know yeah you've got to be able to get on and, and the, the fact that we the way we do things is we we focus on people we focus on purpose and just touching on the pharmaceutical sector there for a moment from your perspective how has the landscape changed for the pharmaceutical sector uh, since you started your career journey and what do you think the future will look like now we're in this new post-covid era Oh, if only we were post-COVID. So when I started my career, it was very much focused on large pharma. So that's where people wanted to be. They wanted to be in big pharma. There wasn't really a biotech sector because the big pharma was where it was at. They were still kind of um, heavily invested in research and, and development. What has changed is large pharma have, um, they've slimmed down in terms of uh, the number of people, the number of sites, and also the the assets that they're working on. So they do a lot less internally. But those wonderful people who have left Big Pharma have then gone to set up biotechs. You know, they've taken their their expertise, uh, their their great minds with them, and they've taken some of the early stage assets with them as well. So large pharma is still there, still playing a a major part. But there's so many more biotechs now, and not everybody can do everything so that the outsourcing sectors the sector that i'm in cdmos that's got bigger so the cdmo sector is the the biggest recruiter in the whole industry at the moment because so much work is is being outsourced so i would like uh from a personal perspective for for that trend to to keep happening i think that large pharma will probably do less research and development so they'll leave their research to the academics and, and to the small companies to then, uh, you know, get those molecules to a certain stage. And then large pharma will buy them in, either buy in the molecules or buy in the company, and then they'll commercialise them from there. And I think that maybe even as, what, two years ago, for the pharmaceutical industry was seen as the second most hated industry in the world, which is just baffling, because the only one that was hated more than us was oil and gas. But through COVID, it's really shone a light on what the industry can do. Everybody's become an epidemiologist, an armchair epidemiologist in that time frame. So the uh, the eyes of the world are, are upon us. And I'm a, um, a big fan of not letting the crisis go to waste. I think that now is the time for us as an industry to think about how do we learn from the pandemic and how we've had to do things more quickly or efficiently. Yes, we're not going to be making new drug molecules and get them to, to market in a year, that's not going to happen. So how, how can we do things more quickly and more efficiently to enable us to get those much needed new drugs to patients? But also from a storytelling perspective, 
that's you we've got this airtime now the focus is on us let's talk about our science in a way that allows us to make our messaging memorable so remember who we're talking to are we talking to somebody at a bus stop are we talking to somebody who uh, uh to kids how do we inspire them to be the next generation of medicine makers how how do we how do we enthuse them in this because i can hold the door open and shine a light on nonsense as much as I possibly can, but we need people to fill in that space. And again, it's another sporting term. I create the space for people to move into. I need these, you know, inspiring, enthusiastic young people to come in and, and, and fill it up and be the, the next generation of medicine makers. And there's no better opportunity, as you said, in terms of the COVID pandemic, a global pandemic, everybody touched in some way by this dreadful situation that we've all had to, to live through. So just a final few questions, Claire. If you could have a chat with your younger self at the start of your career journey, what advice would you give to the younger Claire? Um, I would I would give myself the advice that my sister uh, um, gave me a few years ago, which is uh, what other people think of you is none of your business. Just carry on. Be a, as long as you're a decent human being, you're doing things with good intent, then 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 carry on. And I think be brave uh, as well. Um, sometimes we we find ourselves in, in positions where you think, oh, this would be a good opportunity. Try and propel yourself into the future. You know, if you think it's going to be something that you grow at, if you don't do it, then bloody well go for it. And uh, uh, buy the shoes. Life is short. Buy the shoes. And I mean, I uh, I, I follow that advice anyway. So, <laughs> listen, what, you, what you won't be able to see behind me is my, uh, my, my <laughs> what should be a bookcase but it's actually full of shoes <laughs> so let's let's get let's move on to um some shoe questions because a, a lady after my own heart here with with the shoes i can see behind you um would you prefer some sparkly flats or some high heel pumps probably some sparkly flats I do love a I love a silver shoe. So yeah, yeah. Although I have got some behind me that are um, sparkly and not quite flat and not quite pumps. They're oh, silver. They've got a little heel. They've got a bow on the front. So they, um, can we can we have a ha happy compromise? Feel free to take a picture of those. Yeah, they can go with the podcast. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. What's your favourite movie and why? Well, I had COVID a couple of months ago and uh, I was locked in my COVID cave so that nobody else got it. And I watched loads of films uh, that I hadn't seen in ages and they just, that, again, they filled my cup. And the one that I could probably watch every day is Mary Poppins. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, I think that that's the one that I thought, oh, uh, yeah, she's brilliant, isn't she? She doesn't take any nonsense. We could all be a bit more Mary. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, a night out or a box set binge? A box set binge. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Ozark. Derry Girls had just finished and uh -huh. I'm devastated, so I'm going to watch that back to back again. Yeah, box set binge. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and when? Do you know what? I would probably go back to my undergraduate days again in St Andrews just to be with my football girls again so we're, we're 20 years later we're still you know we're still really close it was just wonderful times I was probably playing my best football and they were just fabulous and I think I because I'd, I'd left home to go to university 
and I, you know, I hadn't come out at home and it allowed me to be myself. So I yeah. found myself and I found my first tribe and I still connected with them. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I'm quite glad it was kind of the mid 90s. So we've got all the memories, but none of the social media. I am totally with you on that front. Having no evidence is a Mm, it's beautiful it's a chef's kiss <laughs> there is photographic evidence but thankfully i still have a really good relationship with all my friends from yeah. there so yeah, yeah it's like so. a what goes on tour stays on tour that 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 dirt stays buried <laughs> oh god i can i'm there with you and finally claire what music discovery or rediscovery have you made over the past two years dolly parton is an absolute legend. As, um, as at the start of the the pandemic, we sent out little care packages to our, our nearest and dearest, so either clients that we were working with or our friends, and um, we got some mugs made with Dolly Parton's face on them. And, call, um, and what's written on them is "Cup of Ambition." Uh, Dolly Parton, I think, has touched all of our hearts. She's a wonderful human being. What she does, not just in uh, music, but as a businesswoman, as a uh, as a as a, as a as a hero and she's you know she donated to uh coronavirus vaccine research oh, yeah. she donates millions of of books to to children so yeah. uh, and then the new discovery is a again i think she's, she's kind of country stroke blues maybe rock singer called brandy carlisle i discovered her about a month ago and i don't know what i've been doing with my life for the last few years that i hadn't heard of brandy carlisle what a voice so give it a listen phenomenal Thank you so, so much, Claire. I, it, it's just been such a fascinating journey of discovery. So thank you so much. Our listeners will gain so much from listening to this podcast. We've got the SALON acronym, Shine a Light on Nonsense. I love it. I, just, I think that's great. The principles by which you, you, you guide your organisation through authentic, credible, engaging, taking time to pause, reflect and celebrate success. And start with the end in mind. Going to finish on that note. Thank you so, so much, Claire. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. Welcome. It's been wonderful. To find out more about Connect Health Tech and join our conversations online, go to our website at connect.cam.ac.uk forward slash health tech.